definitely the best manager I've ever played for. I mean, you look at his winning percentage, I think the best since World War II, 583. I mean, that, that's amazing. He had five 100-win teams. I was fortunate enough to play on two of them. I had a good year that year when I was, yeah, I turned 30 years old. Uh, I think part of it was that Eddie Murray came on the scene in that year, too. I remember the first time I ever saw Eddie hit, and it was in spring training. Yeah, I watched Eddie Murray when he came up in, what, 77, batting practice down in uh, spring training in Miami. He's batting left-handed, and he's hitting balls over the right field wall, and I'm out in left field with Lee May and Pacquiao. And we said, who's, who's this hitting? Somebody said Murray, and I said, is that his first name or his last name? And <laughs> so... And then I said, oh, wait a minute. You know, not to mention being a switch hitter, not to mention hand-eye coordination. So then the next round of BP, he gets up and he hits right hand. He's hitting balls over our head over the fence. So everybody's starting to say, wow, this kid's got some power. What, what position does he play? Nobody knew. So well, let's see where he goes after he takes batting practice. So he went over the first base to take some ground balls. And Pat Kelly turned to Lee May and said, Lee, you're in trouble, man. <laughs> Remember, Hank Peters, when Eddie came up in the spring of 77, wanted to send Eddie back to the minor leagues. Spring training starts, and uh, Hank Peters thinks I need to go back to Rochester. And Earl said, no, they kicked up two hits the other day, and drove in three, I'm going to play him again. He said he needed more seasoning. So this continues going to spring training. Finally, uh, Earl, this kid's got to get to his team. Well, Earl told Hank Peters, the GM, he said, look, if Eddie's not on the team, I'm not going to manage the team. Earl told him, this kid's team might be here with us. So um, that means Eddie was on the team. Oh, Earl loves him, Eddie. <laughs> I was always the youngest on the ball club. Believe it or not, starting the season, I was always the youngest on the ball club, I think, up until like year seven or eight. Eddie was kind of quiet, and that, that was because... Um, you had Kenny Sullivan, and it was always jump on the rookie reports. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times I heard, shut up, rookie, you know. Next thing they know, it's two weeks, and I haven't said a word to any of them. That's all true. So who are you talking to? Eddie showing up really slipped by the line. It made my job a lot easier, too. Earl called me in the office and said, look, I'm going to move the kid up before. You just do what you normally do. If you don't hit a home run, get on base so he can hit. So that basically that was my job. <laughs> oh, Earl loves him, Eddie. <laughs> I think Eddie and I were the best switch hitting duo in baseball history. To give you an example, the 1979 and 1980 seasons, between us we drove in 430 runs. 215 for him and 215 for me. And uh, I remember Jim Fergosi was managing the Angels at the time. Said, you guys are the most difficult team to manage against because whatever move I make out there in the bullpen, one of you guys just jump over to the other side of the plate and, uh, you know, it, it's pick your poison with either one of us. Yeah, you know, Eddie. Eddie, it's almost like Eddie Murray knew what was coming, which is why he had over 500 home runs and 3,000 hits, and there's only five guys on that list. Eddie also was on his way to having a Hall of Fame career. When you went out there to play for a Weaver, you had the feeling that he was ahead of what was going on in the game. He wouldn't be outmanaged. You know, sometimes he got tossed out of games and we were kind of on our own. But even those days gave us a day off from him. So uh, it was uh, it was fun. 
there was some uh, real love there because at that particular time there wasn't a, a a whole lot of money there. All my teammates, I love them all. Uh, we still, I'm still in contact with a lot of them. You, you know, it was just some real love there on that golf club. What's that? That's a swear jar. Every time someone swears, you put a quarter in it. Who gets the money? I don't know. We'll use it to buy something for the office, like a case of Bud Light or something. Fucking awesome. Fuck you, Bob. Fuck you, Jim. Eric, I have a bag on line three for you. Can I borrow your pen? Can I borrow your fucking pen? Will the owner of a white station wagon please go yourself? We're gonna go down there and we're gonna some. We're gonna some. We're gonna do whatever we have to because we're gonna some. Poop. Doesn't count. Shut the up. I am so proud of you, suckers. Here, here. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light, always worth it inside a can of Old Bay, a dock worker from Locust Point, a doctor from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk, and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are... Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. The 2-0. This ball is really drilled. And see you later. It might be in a different line. Get on. 
over to it. I got ridiculous pause without forcing it. You sit at home crying like the girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mix this smooth with the groove to the ears. What a listen at a little cut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now I can stack them up. You think another way, rap back, but this ain't no ad jack. My hobbies are rhymes, some people trying to be black, but that about time I come out, call the show. BKB and let me turn it out, yo. Name Jacob Snake, born in 71. Date, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kurt chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, team heads? What's juicy? It's your boy Jake the Snake Robinson. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. This is show 122, week two of spring training, and this is Backwards K Pod from the Let's Talk Baseball. Podcast Network, a place where all of us CMED nerds get together, as I like to give you a deep dive into the history of baseball's most colorful characters, personalities, stadiums, moments, pop culture references that have permeated their way through our baseball conscience. The 2024 season is on the clock, as we are about five weeks away from opening day, and it's been a wonderful week, filled with The pop coming from baseball mitts as boys begin to play catch, loosen up those wings, the crack in the bat, the smell of freshly cut grass, the sights and sounds of rookie hazing, everybody's in first place, and the optimism for another year is abounding fans everywhere. It's another exciting chapter in this never-ending saga of Major League Baseball, and I'll be here every week of the season, the Iron Man of Pods, keeping you abreast of all the goings-ons of the season, as well as giving you some of the most memorable counts of the history of this beautiful game. I got a full tank of gas. I'm ready to toe the slab, give you nine strong innings today. So give me that ball, and let's go. We've still got some... High-profile players left out there in the market. Those that shall remain nameless until they get signed. We all know the name of these jokers and the agent that represents them. And if they don't care to get the ball rolling and sign with a team already, then I don't care to feel sorry for them. If elevating their profile and bank account is all that matters, then so fucking be it. Don't play. I could care less. I officially turned the hot stove off last week, shut the kitchen down. We're well past that horse shit. Baseball is the most beautiful game in the world until adults fuck it up. And I'm so over these clowns not getting to work on time. This game waits for no man, and we move on. I mean, can you imagine if the in the real world worked like this? 
It's getting to be goddamn ridiculous. Sign your obscene contracts. Get your ass to work. No one feels sorry for you or your greedy ass agent who works for you, by the way. Not the other way around. So, with the first week of spring training in the books with a backwards K next to it, that's going to be my cue to get started on this week's topic. Now, I got a schedule to keep. Bending space and time is an exact science. And these wormhole portals, they don't negotiate. They can be temperamental to say the least. So, with that in mind, I'd like to get your remaining stragglers here at Terrapin Station to clear the platform and hop onto my state-of-the-art BKP time travel choo-choo. As I look to the west of Terrapin, I see our beautifully manicured baseball fields just waiting to be blessed with today's matchup. The pitcher has completed his warm-up tosses. The catcher has thrown the ball down to the shortstop covering second base. The umpires call play ball. And the infielders throw that rock around the diamond. And this is where I give my final call. All aboard! As this week, I will be setting our time and destination for February 24th, 1956. Los Angeles, California, the Watts District, East L.A. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, get in where you fit in, take off your shoes, open your kimonos, ladies, rip those bras off, let the girls hang, get yourself comfortable, we don't judge here, because this week, I get to present the story of one of my first baseball superheroes as a kid learning the game. This week, we will be examining the life and career of Eddie Murray. Steady Eddie, as we called him in the charm. And that's not an exaggeration when I say it was an, he was an absolute superhero for me. My childhood chums and I fantasized all the time about being Eddie Murray. We all wanted to be him. In Little League, there was at least three kids fighting over who would be number 33. And all of us tried at least once that exaggerated Murray Crouch when he went bat left-handed. And I can remember being absolutely fascinated with the stirrups he wore over his bleach white socks. These bad boys used to seemingly stretch all the way up to his waist. My stirrups had to be the same exact way. I'd make my moms cut them at the bottom and add elastic to them if they didn't stretch up to my knee like I wanted. I mean, Christ, I would shave the prepubescent peach fuzz around my cheeks and hope that I would grow his legendary mutton chops. Yeah, I'm like 10. And even though Eddie was by far the best position player on my team, I was a Kenny Singleton super fan. My, my Uncle David was all about Eddie Murray. The summer of 79, which was hands down my favorite Orioles season before last year, my uncle and I would have these vociferous debates on which guy had the biggest impact on last night's game. And as great as my dude was, I always knew deep down inside that Eddie was just a little bit better. So, as I build up the necessary quantum speeds needed to open up these time-bending portals, some of you may experience a slight humming sound in your ear as I hit that radio frequency of 1.6 gigahertz on our spectrum analyzer don't be alarmed 
it's a frequency not heard by earthlings without the proper security clearance. It's completely harmless necessity to get to where we're going. So, in 1985, Steady Eddie drove in a career high 124 RBI, 37 doubles, and eclipsed a 30 home run threshold for the fourth time in his career. He made his first all star appearance as a starter and finished fifth in MVP voting. And it was a season that saw Eddie rise above the challenges of his personal life. In December of 1984, his mother died. And in February of 1985, his sister Tanya was hospitalized with kidney ailments, causing him to miss a few days of spring training. In April, his sister Lucilla dies from a heart from heart problems, and Murray would miss five games to attend his sister's funeral and be by his family's side. On August 26, 1985, Eddie homers three times versus the California Eagles out of the Big A of Anaheim. It was the third and last three homer game of his career. His father, Charles, led the hostile spectators as he rose to his feet when Eddie was replaced with a pitch runner in the ninth inning after drawing a walk. And even out Angels outfielder Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson, who had a memorable three home run game himself during the 1977 World Series, was so impressed, saying it was the best baseball performance anyone has seen in the past 10 years. And Murray has often acknowledged he could always hit. Even as an eight, nine year old kid, he can remember. His Little League coach challenging the kids with that heat. And if you missed, you had to run laps. Eddie very rarely ever had to run fucking laps. His high school coach, Arthur Webb, recalled how most pitchers didn't want to get wrapped up in this fucking Murray Vortex when it was just so much easier to walk him. Scouts were constantly stiffing around his fire hydrant. He was strong and rangy. He had explosive wrists like Hank Aaron. He had a great attitude. Rarely ever struck out. And boy, could Eddie hit a country mile as a teenager. And Coach Webb would go on to say that he probably would have hit for a higher average if I didn't have him pitching as well. But he knew that his young phenom had all the tools to make it in the big leagues. And Eddie's game was never one of chest pounding, knock him dead showmanship. It was rather a skill set of subtle nuance. He was a man of strict discipline and singular unwavering focus. Attention to detail, executed game after game, year after year, with wonderful mechanical efficiency. Making him amongst the most undervalued and misunderstood players of his generation. Murray was the hybrid combination of intuitive and analytic in a personal way. And during one of his typical Murray stretch runs in 1982, Thomas Boswell from the Washington Post wrote that no one talks or thinks hitting like Eddie Murray. 
coming into Los Angeles, California, February 24th, 1956, where the eighth of 12 siblings has been born to Charles and Carrie Bell Fairchild Murray. And they would name the future baseball icon Edward Clarence Murray. His parents had moved the young growing family from Cary, Mississippi to East L.A. a decade before. His father supported his family as a forklift operator for the Lolo Rug Company, where he would retire after a 30-year tenure with the company. In all, the Murray unit had five boys, seven girls. And all five boys played professional baseball in some capacity. Eddie's oldest brother, Charles, he played six seasons in the Houston Astros organization, making it to double A. In 1964, Charles' third year pro ball, he melted 37 home runs, drove in 119 for, the, for uh, Modesto in the Class A California League, second only to Ollie Downtown Brown. And his brothers, Leon and Venice, had stints in the Giants organization. Leon played a season of rookie ball in 1970 before an arm injury put his career on the shelf. And Venice played a season in Class A Cedar Rapids in 1978 before shredding his knee. And Eddie played baseball. Well, he played baseball only during his senior year. He played a couple sports in his younger younger uh, years of high school, but by the time he's a senior, he's only playing baseball. This is at Allen Leroy Lock High School in Los Angeles, California, where he's a star pitcher, and he's named the Prep Player of the Month of April 1973 by the L.A. Sentinel. And that same article makes mention of a shortstop teammate, Osborne Smith, who was hitting 304 and being named the Marine League Co-Player of the Year in basketball. And Lock High was located in a hot spot for trouble in East L.A. It's riddled with gangs, drugs, constant gunfire could be heard ringing through the neighborhood. But Eddie's parents made sure that their kids were isolated away from the violence that gripped the Watts neighborhood. And when he wasn't pitching, Eddie played first base in left field. In his senior year, he had a 6-1 record on the bump and a 500 batting average in the box, leading his school to the Marine League Championship. His brother, Rich, was his catcher, and he was named second all-team league. Murray was selected in the third round of the 1973 amateur baseball draft by the Baltimore Orioles. He's signed by scout Ray Pointman. His younger brother Rich was drafted by the Giants in the sixth round two years later, and he eventually played parts of two seasons with San Francisco. And Eddie starts his his career with Bluefield in the Appalachian League. 50 games, he batted 287, dropped 11 bombs, drove in 32, and he's named the league MVP. In 1974, he is promoted to Miami Class A Florida State League, where he once again is a standout league all-star at first base, batting 289, 
his 48 extra base hits and leads the team and his 29 doubles and led the league. By the end of his campaign, he played briefly in AA Asheville and he spent the 1975 season there batting 264. And four months into the season, Eddie finds himself in a nasty slump. And manager Jimmy uh, Schaefer suggests that the natural left-handed swinging Eddie try switch hitting. Something he had never tried in his life. This is 1975, two years before he becomes a pro, folks. And the Orioles, of course, they're skeptical. But Murray was determined to succeed. He began the 1976 season in Charlotte, North Carolina. As the Orioles had transitioned their team there from Asheville. After playing 88 games there, that saw him again make the league all-star team. He was promoted to AAA Rochester of the International League. And between AA Charlotte and AAA Rochester, he dropped 23 dogs and he had 86 RBIs. And although the initial plan for the Orioles was to season Young Murray with one more year in Rochester... The now power-hitting, new switch-hitting prodigy made quite the impression at spring training. And he caught manager Earl Weaver's eye, and he earned his right to fly north with the big club at the beginning of the 1977 season. And like the soundbite to kick off the show said, Earl Weaver loved him some Eddie Murray from day one. And like Pat Kelly's told Lee May in that bite, Lee, you're in trouble, man. Eddie was a man without a position that first year. First base was occupied by Lee May. So Murray was usually penciled in as a DH that first campaign. He played 110 games uh, in that capacity with 42 starts at first and six as an outfielder. He's named Rookie of the Year, batting 283, smacking 29 doubles, 27 home runs, 88 RBI. And he would eventually trade that DH position for the first base gig with the big bopper, May. And he followed up with two more successful seasons, batting 285 in 1978 with 27 home runs, 95 ribs, being named to his first All-Star game. And in 1979, he hits 295, smashes 25 home runs, and drives in 99 as the Orioles won the AL East pennant and advanced to the post. On August 15th, in a game versus the White Sox, with the game deadlocked at twos in the 12th, Murray finds himself at third base, Doug DeSensei at first. One and two, the count on the batter, Benny Ayala. When manager Earl Weaver dug into his bag of gimmicky tricks, as the pitcher went into a stretch, DeSensei intentionally stumbles off first base, falling to the ground, and pitcher Guy Hoffman, distracted by DeSensei's intentional misstep, he fails to see Eddie Murray stealing home until it was too late. Murray, who was never a true speed threat, stole home three times that year. On August 29th, his first three home run game versus the Twins and the second game of doubleheader and led the Birds to a 7-4 win. 
The Orioles won the best of five ALCS against the California Angels as Eddie batted 417 with a homer and five RBI. And Baltimore's 9-8 win in game two. Eddie singled home a run in the first, slammed a three-run dong in the second to extend the lead to 8-1. to And in the clincher, Murray drove home a run in the 8 to nothing victory. Murray hit a bomb in Game 2 of the World Series against the Pirates in the World Series, but his performance outside of that was subpar as a third-year player was only able to go 4 for 26 as the Pirates took the chip in seven games. And that's a story we covered in full detail here at BKP in the We Are Family pod that is in that archive of banging-ass shows. And that's available on all podcast platforms, or diamondstakejake.podbean.com. Eddie had his best season to date in 1980, but it almost ended before it even started. On July 13th in the game versus Kansas City, Royal superstar George Brett hit a smash grounder down the first baseline that took a crazy last-second bounce and smashed into the right eye of Eddie Murray. And then it's ricocheting into second base, uh, out, to, out to the outfield, and it drives in a run. And Eddie would leave the game, get stitched up, and miss four games. And although his vision was somewhat impaired, steady Abe Eddie was able to recover and complete the season in grand fashion. And his last 76 games, he batted 316 with 18 home runs, 59 ribs. He finished the season batting 300 with 32 dongs, 116 RBI, and he finished 6th in MVP Valley. In 1981, Murray was on his way towards the most productive season as a big leader before the player strike put the kibosh on that shit, dashing 57 potential games in the process. So, playing in 99 games... Murray led the AL in homers with 22, RBIs with 78, and he batted 294. For the second time, he was selected to play in the All-Star Game, and he finished 10th in voting for league MVP. In 1982, Murray had another outstanding campaign. 316 BA, 32 bombs, 110 ribs. He earned his first gold glove for his defensive work at first base. And he placed a second in the AL MVP voting to Robin Yell of the AL pennant winning Brewers. And the Orioles finished second to Milwaukee in 1982, uh, falling one game off the pace of Harvard Wallbangers Brewers. Another story I covered, and it's in the archives. You can find that on the Harvey Wallbangers show in my catalog in honor of manager Harvey Keith. The Orioles emerged victorious in 1983 after a season-long battle with the second-place Tigers before pulling away with the divisional crown in September to win the East by six games. Murray batted 306, 33 big flies, 111 RBI. He was named to his third consecutive All-Star game, finished second in the MVP balloting, this time to second-year teammate Calverton Jr., even though Murray for sure had the better season. He, he won another Gold Glove Award at first base. He collected his first Silver Slugger Award. In the ALCS, the Orioles would drop the first game of the series to the Chicago White Sox, 
managed by Tony LaRusso before the Birds would take the next three games and the series. In game three, Steady Eddie hit a mammoth upper tag blast at Old Comiskey Park to catapult the O's to an 11 to 1 curb stomping and put them in the driver's seat for the series with a two games to one lead. In game four, the Orioles and White Sox are still made it at a 0 to 0 nail biting tie in the 10th inning. Murray singles the spark. And reserve outfielder Tito Landrum dropped the series winning dong as the Birds would win 3 to nothing and move on to face the NL champion Phillies in the World Series. And again, the Orioles would drop the first game of the series before winning the next four and eliminating Filthy in five. And for most of the season, uh, the series, both... What I remember most about that World Series is that both Eddie Murray and Michael Jack Schmidt, the preeminent power hitters for that year, were both quiet throughout the Classic. And the prevailing thought was, whichever slugger got hot first would determine who would win or lose the series. And thankfully for the Orioles, there would be no repeat of the 1979 series meltdown versus an inferior Pennsylvania opponent. As Eddie's bats finally came to life in the last game of the series. He led off the second inning with a homer on Charlie Hudson to give Scotty McGregor a one nothing lead. In the third, catcher Rick Dempsey homer to put the O's up 2 to nothing. In the fourth, with Junior aboard, uh, Murray hits another blast that bangs off his name on the scoreboard in right center field to give Balmer a 4 to nothing lead. The Orioles would tackle on another run, and McGregor would go on to masterfully shut down the Phillies lineup in a complete game shutout and securing the Orioles' first world championship title since 1970. Over the next several seasons, Steady Eddie was a model of consistency. In 1984, he played in all 162 games. His 410 OVP led the AL. He made another all-star appearance, won his third gold glove award, his second silver slugger. And once again, he finishes in the top five in AL MVP voting. Toward the end of the 1985 season, which saw Eddie continue with consistency of excellence, Despite the family tragedy that I spoke of earlier, he still managed to hit 297, bash 31 home runs, drive in 124, while finishing in the top five for MVP voting for the fifth consecutive year. The Orioles decided to reward their star with the then highest contract in baseball history, a five-year extension for $13 million. $13 million in 1985 was worth a round that's the year, $38 million today in the 2024 economy, to give you proper context. And 1986 saw another fine effort by Eddie as he was elected to the All-Star team for the last time as an Oriole. However, he didn't see action in the Midsummer Classic and he pulled a hamstring on July 3rd, running out of ground ball in the first inning, leaving the game in the 8th. It was the first inning he had missed because of an injury since 1983. And he was, I mean, a workhorse. 
And that's the thing about those Earl Weaver teams. If you go back and you look at guys like Calvert Kidd Jr., Eddie Murray, Brooks Robinson, well, Earl was going to put you in the lineup every single day. I mean, you know, he just felt like his teams were better fit for battle and such and such was in the lineup and if you were such and such, you're going to play. I mean, those guys played day in, day out every year back then. But Murray remains in the lineup as a DH to July 6th when he uh, aggravated the injury and left the game. After a couple pinch hit opportunities on July 8th and 9th, he went on the uh, disabled list on the 10th and he was virtually idle until August 7th. And towards the end of the season, a rip begins to build between Orioles owner Edward Bennett Williams and Eddie. And Williams begins to question Murray Eppert. And he began complaining that Murray's uniform was never fucking dirty at the end of the game. I mean, just so he's a first baseman for crying out loud. And he would do all this in this disturbing way of confirming his dubious claims of lack of effort on Eddie's part. And Murray, meanwhile, was frustrated with Edward Bennett Williams and his inability to inexplicably field a winner anymore. As the team began to circle the proverbial drain of mediocrity after the World Series win in 1983. The Orioles had dropped to last place in the American League East in 1986. And things would only get worse. The feud continued through the 1988 season. And by now, Eddie is no longer talking to the local media, which has portrayed him with these racist undertones as, you know, this lazy, sullen, malcontent figure. And the major reason for the O's downfall from 20 years of the Orioles being one of the most consistent teams in the American League. His diminishing production in conjunction with the Orioles' lousy play, it resulted in loud, boisterous insults being hurled down on him at Memorial Stadium. Although he hit 58 home runs between 1987 and 1988, and he became the first switch hitter in the history of Major League Baseball, to homer from both sides of the plate in consecutive games on May 8th and 9th of 1987, he still managed to put up a 277 and 284 average respectively, but he failed to drive in 100 runs in either of those seasons. So after the 1988 season, Orioles fans were shocked to hear Edward Bennett Williams was traded, uh, trading Eddie Murray to the Los Angeles Dodgers for Juan Bell, Brian Holden, and Ken Howe, and probably the second worst trade in club history besides the Glenn, Glenn Davis debacle. And I can still see my Uncle David shaking his head in bewilderment. The glory days of the Orioles were over, and little did we know, they would never return, even now, some 30 years later. And I think this is where I'm going to stick a pin in our story, take a break. Me and my boy Gunner uh, need to step out for a second here. Let me get Miss Trees earned for a solid first segment. And I need to hydrate, rip a few tunes before I move on. I will never charge you nerds for the baseball content here at BKP. No Patreon, no Twitch. 
No pay-to-play subscriptions. Never going to charge you for a bonus show. I got too much love in my heart, respect for my audience, to act like I mess up a nuke. If you want to help me, just support my sponsors, share the show with your C-Man buddies, and leave me a review on the platform you used to listen to me. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm going to stay true to me, baby. A hundred on that. Like the kids say nowadays, all backs, no caps. <laughs> okay, sit tight, freaks. Me and Gunner, we're going to return and give you more of the Eddie Murray bio. See you on the dark side of the moon here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And this is Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. BRB freaks. This game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow, the bat on the ball, and tearing on the base paths. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball. Keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that shift out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. mentioned in the booth, Howard said it, in the last ball game it looked like Eddie Murray was swinging the bat a little bit better. He's had a couple of pitches like that earlier in uh, in the series and hasn't been able to do much with him, but he certainly got all of that one. You can see by his demeanor today, he knew he was getting back into his hitting groove, he was much more relaxed and comfortable. speed off speed pitch but also said Eddie's going to get it. Eddie hit a fastball, 3-2 fastball the first time. He went to the plate looking for the breaking ball and there it went. Howdy y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geek, executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the fishing hand cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands 
after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There is also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. Eddie Murray walked his first time up against Felipe Lira, then reached out a fielder's choice in the fourth as he hit the ball real hard. And the shortstop, Travis Feynman, made a great play to flag it down and get the force play at second. Eddie sends one to deep right field. Way back, and down is Trinity of switch hitters in the history of Major League Baseball, Eddie Murray. And for me, 
the holy trinity of MLB switch hitters is Chipper Jones, a story I've already done. It's folded up nicely and in my collection of ball players and there's stories in that catalog of bangers. Then there's uh, Mickey Mantle, who was on the schedule later in the summer. And of course, the Mick is in the Trinity. But this week, it's all about my personal childhood super- superhero, Eddie Murray, the third member of this exclusive trio. I think at least 90% of us will agree with the Mick at the top. And two or three is a crazy debate. I'll leave you the audience to decide by your own standards, whatever they may be. I also knew that many people would have Rose in and either Murray or Chipper out. Which I can respect the argument, and I would respect what listen to that argument. But for me, it's Chipper, Murray, and the Mick. But... I digress, so before Gunner and I balled out like cutoff shorts for that last break, I opened the clam about Hall of Famer Eddie Murray, the kid who was the eighth of 12 siblings growing up in the 60s and 70s in the rough and tumble Watts District of Los Angeles. And his parents kept their children sheltered from the streets and the allure of drugs and gangs through education and sports. All five of the Murray boys would play professional baseball. And Eddie was a natural born killer as a pitcher, first baseman, left fielder in high school. As he and teammate shortstop Ozzie Smith would win a Marine League championship. The Orioles drafted to play first base in the 1973 amateur draft. Third round. He shoots his way through the lower levels of the Orioles farm system and is finally challenged in AAA Rochester and it's suggested to him that, hey, maybe you should try switch hitting. So that's what he did. And I'm saying that nonchalantly, but this freak taught himself how to switch hit less than a full year away from going to the big club. And many of the blossoming Orioles prospects in the pipeline at that time, they could not believe that not only did he teach himself how to do it at the AAA level, but he had plus, plus power from both sides of the dish. So he goes on to make the Major League roster when Earl Weaver threatened to quit and they forced him to send Murray back down. Oh, indeed, Earl loved some Eddie Murray. And Steady Eddie would basically blossom into a prodigious force in the middle of the lineup as the Orioles were a model consistency from 1966 to 1984. As Murray and his core Burns went on to win the World Series, of, uh, went on to the World Series in 1979, losing to the We Are Family Pirates, uh, uh, the We Are Family Pirates. And he finally beat the Phillies in 1983. But within four years of winning that last Orioles World Series in 1983, the club had disintegrated into mediocrity and management. And Murray began to bicker. Uh, Murray and uh, Edward Bennett Williams, they began bickering with one another. And 
there was a portion of the fans of Baltimore, which is usually the loudest about everything in fucking life, not just in Baltimore, but everywhere. You know, always the naysayers are always the loudest. And they began blaming the best player on the team for their failures as an organization. And that was brought on by some of the most horrific baseball journalism of the day. Colin Murray, lazy, sullen. And bless his heart, he's rude to us. In 1988, the Orioles' way, I'm sorry, 1988, the Orioles' way, my uncle and I, our baseball innocence, it was all gone. When EBW said Eddie Murray packing, moving him to the Dodgers in a trade for Juan Bell, Brian Horton, and Ken Howe, a disastrous trade if there ever was one. And Murray's a little hurt. For the most part, he enjoyed being on some successful teams playing for Earl. But it all went downhill after winning that chip. And he was quietly angry that he became the scapegoat in the stupid pissing contest between he and Edward Bennett Williams. And while the introverted Murray was trying to process how a beautiful thing could end so bad, he was buoyed by the fact that he was returning home to Los Angeles, California to play for his hometown Dodgers. And although L.A. was 3,000 miles or 4,828 kilometers away, it may as well have been like going to the moon. While Eddie had been a kid in Los Angeles, he had become a man in Baltimore. Eddie had incredible optimism about his future, but this was a much different scene in L.A. than the one he had left behind all those years ago. There were certainly changes in the household of his youth by now. His mother had died in December 1984, and his sister Lucilla died from heart issues in April of 85. His younger sister Tanya, who had been hospitalized for kidney ailments shortly after the death of her mother, was also engaged in a battle for her life, one that she would fight until 2003. Nevertheless... An upbeat and optimistic Eddie Murray. He shows up for his first spring training camp with the Dodgers in 1989, telling reporters he was looking forward to having fun again playing baseball. And he was never one to shy away from a challenge. Despite his new lease on baseball life, 1989 was a disappointing season for Eddie. He batted 247 with 20 home runs, 88 RBI. As L.A. finished fourth in the NL West with a record of 77 and 83. But the following season saw the resurrection of Steady Eddie as his average soared to career high 330. He matched out 26 dogs, drove in 95 runs, the most RBI to his name since 1985. And he was awarded the Silver Slug Award for the third and final time in his career while finishing fifth in MVP Valley. The Dodgers finished second behind the Queen City Reds by five games. In 1991, Murray's numbers slipped slightly. After getting off to a nice start, batting 300 for the first two months of the campaign, he went into like this three-month funk that saw his B.A. drop to 247 by the end of August. 
Nevertheless, the 35-year-old first baseman was selected to play in his last All-Star game. And Thomas Boswell once wrote, If Reggie Jackson is Mr. October, then Eddie Murray is Mr. September. Now, some of you may think that this was a slight, like when Mr. Steinbrenner called Dave Winfield Mr. May, but it was really it wasn't. When Boswell wrote that quote, he was referring to Eddie's unreal production in the 1982 stretch run, a 31-game stretch from August 17th to September 16th. Murray went off, smashing 11 home runs, driving 38 runs. In those Baltimore days, steady Eddie's star always seemed to shine brightest down the stretch. Earl Weaver, who was like, you know, a stratomatic, analytical nerd long before anyone knew about metrics. He once said, Eddie must have hit near 600 in any 7, 8, 9 with runners on second, and I'm not even exaggerating. So, at the age of 35, one has to wonder, can he do it again in a totally different environment? In 1991, almost 10 years after the quote. Well, Murray's performance in September kept L.A. in the race. He hit safely in his last five games of August, and he continued to stay white hot through the first three games of September. In those games, he went 6 for 11 with a pair of home runs. The Dodgers found themselves now tied with Atlanta for first place. As they took the field on September 4th for only the ninth time all year, Murray did not start because of a sprained ankle and a sore back. While hosting the cards in a scenario where every game is a must win, St. Louis holds a 3 to nothing advantage going into the bottom of the 7th. The Dodgers are making a little noise when Alfredo Griffin and Mike Sharperson single with two outs. So manager Tom Lasorda sends coach Bill Russell to the training room to get Eddie Murray to bat for pitcher, for pitcher Tim Belcher. Mitch Webster, who was originally tasked with pitch hitting for Belcher, but really was, he was just called to stall while Murray got to sit together. He gets called back to the dugout as old 33 comes walking down that tunnel and into the dugout. And in a scene eerily reminiscent of the amazing display of clutch offered up by Kirk Gibson in the 1988 World Series against the A's and Dennis Eckersley, Eddie limps to the plate. The count goes 2-2, two and two, and Rio Cormier's next pitch is called a ball by umpire Doug Harvey, just fractions of an inch off the plate. And with the count full, Eddie fouls off the next pitch. And the next pitch. And the next pitch. And with each near miss, you can hear the crowd sigh and relief. And they crescendo back up into the spear pitch. He fouls off eight pitches. With each pitch, Chavez Rabin begins to vibrate with the noise. I'm sorry, it was a 12-pitch at bat. So, Murray, on the 12th pitch, he launches a moonshot 
just beyond the outstretch of 10 by left fielder Bill Thompson and over the 370 foot side and into a sea of blue. Dodgers fans absolutely lose their minds. It had to feel like 1982 again for Steady as he's rounding the bases. The Dodgers fans began chanting, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. Just like my uncle and I had done all those fucking years before, sitting in Memorial Stadium. The Dodgers found their pulse again. They cruised to an 8-3 win after that clutch home run. And after the game, the head meatball in charge, who bled Dodgers blue, Tom Lasorda, he told the writers, I figure if I needed a home run, it was right now. I got Eddie for one shot. I had to go for it. We may never get this chance again. The dog was Murray's fourth in five days, and it was the second pitch hit home run of his career. It was a magnificent September for Murray in 1991. He hit 351 for that month. He collected his 2,500th hit of his career with a third inning single off of Dennis Rasmussen of his Padres. On September 30th in a 7-2 victory. And that win kept the Dodgers ahead of the Braves by one game as the season entered its final week. L.A. would lose three state games and were eliminated from contention on the final Saturday of the season. Falling short to Atlanta by one game. During the offseason... Murray became a free agent, but the Dodgers had no interest in giving Steady a multi-year deal. So on November 27, 1991, Murray signs a two-year deal with the Mets for $7.5 million, which is around $17.2 million here in 2024. And in his two years with the New York uh, in New York, the Mets did not contend. In 1992, he batted 261 with 16 home runs, a team-leading 93 RBI, and a rather forgettable season, except for one game on May 3rd against the Braves in Atlanta. The Mets take a 6-0 lead in the top of the 8th. Murray's double to 5th was the catalyst for a five-run outburst, and it gives Mets pitcher David Cohn all the ammunition he needed to destroy Braves hitters that day. Marvin Freeman came on the pitch for the Braves, and Murray greeted him by swatting his 400th home run of his vaunted career. In 1993, he batted 285 with 27 home runs and a team high 100 RBI. But the Mets hit rock bottom, finishing in seventh place, 38 games behind the division winning Philadelphia Phillies. On November 1st, 1993, Murray becomes a free agent. And in December, he signs with the Cleveland Indians. In his first year with the Tribe, he played in 108 games. He batted 254 with 76 RBI, 17 home runs. Before the season was cut short by the players' strike in August. In 1995, with the 3,000 hit benchmark within his sights, Murray begins the year smoking hot, hitting 16 of his first 17 games. He returns back to his Ironman ways, playing in all of Cleveland's first 60 games. 
on June 30th in Minneapolis versus the Twins. He is batting 309 and he's sitting at 2,999 hits as the Tribe take the field with a 40-17 and 17 record. Murray is hitless in his first two at-bats, but in the sixth inning with the game tied at ones, Eddie Murray steps into plate with Albert Bell at second, and Eddie strokes a Mike Trombley offering, and, and the, you know, the ground ball had eyes, finding a hole between first and second, before bounding in the right field and giving the switch hitter his 3,000th hit. Two days later, he was injured in the final game of the season, and he missed 20 uh, series. He missed 25 games. He returns to action on August 1st. And he ends the season with a 323 batting average, his best average since 1990. His 21 doubles have marked the 19th consecutive season with 20 more doubles. He blasted 21 home runs, drove in 100, uh, drove in 82 runs, while the Indians advanced to the postseason for the first time since 1954. In the ALDS, three-game sweep of the Red Sox. Murray went 5 for 13 with an RBI singling in game one and a two run shot in game two. In the ALCS against Seattle, the Indians were down two games to one before storming back to win the next three games to advance to the Fall Classic versus the Braves. And Eddie played a key role in those uh, wins. In Game 4, his two-run shot in the first and propelled the Tribe to a 7-0 victory. In Game 5, he drove in the first Cleveland run with a single after doubling in a six. And he also scored on a Jim Tobey bomb to put the Tribe up 3-2 for good. And the Indians would lose to the Braves in six games. Even though Eddie's Walk-off single in the 11th off, Alejandro Pena scored Alvaro Espinosa with the winning run in Game 3. And that would be Cleveland's first World Series game since 1948. The Braves, however, would win two of the remaining three games in the series. In 1996, Murray stands on the precipice of reaching a plateau. At that time... Reached only by Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. At the end of the 1995 season, he had 479 career home runs, 3,071 hits, sitting just 21 home runs shy of becoming becoming only the third person in the history of the game with 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. After 97 games with the Indians, he was batting 262 with 12 home runs. On July 21st, he's traded from Cleveland to Baltimore for pitcher Kent Merker. The trade was made pursuant to the request of Orioles owner Peter Angelos, who wanted to see the prodigal son return home to hit his 500th home run in an Orioles uniform. And Murray was very much in favor of this return. On September 6th, one year to the day after his former protege, Calverton Jr., had tied the unbreakable record set by Lou Gehrig for his 2,130th consecutive game, the Orioles are facing off with the Tigers. 
The Orioles were in second place in the American League East and in contention for a playoff berth. The O's are trailing Detroit 3-2 to in the bottom of the seventh when Murray strode to the plate facing Felipe Lira. Lira. Murray homered to tie the game. It was a 500th home run of his career and his ninth since his return to the charm. And he would finish the season with 501 as the Birds gained a berth in the post as a wild card team. In the ALTS, the Orioles won the best of five series versus the Tribe in four games. The O's faced the Yankees in the ALCS, losing the best of seven game series in five games. In game five, a 6-4 Oriole loss, Murray batting right-handed dropped dog on Andy Pettit's lips with a blast in the eighth. It was Murray's last postseason at bat. And 44 postseason at bats, he hit nine home runs, drove at 25, batted 258, with his only chip in 1983 with the Birds. In 1997, Murray returns home to California, this time to play with the Angels. He was with the club through August 14th of that year, appearing mostly as a DH. He hit home run number 504 on May 30th off of Twins right-handed pitcher Bob Tewsbury. Six days after being released by the Halos, he signed with the Dodgers. He, he made nine pitch-hitting appearances, going two for seven with a pair of walks. The last of his 3,255 career hits came off his former Indians teammate Dennis Cook. And that also produced the last of his 1,917 RBI. When he hung up a spice for good, only 12 men had more hits. Only 10 had more RBI. And no switch hitter has ever had more ribs to their credit. His career average of 287 included a 1990 season in which his 330 average was the best in the majors. However, he would lose the NL batting crown to Willie McVie, who had a higher batting average before being traded to the American League that year. In six seasons, Murray played at least 160 games, and his 3,026 games played is tied with Stan Musel for sixth most in baseball history. He was an RBI machine who was particularly dangerous with the bases drunk. He hit 19 grand slams and puts him fourth on the all-time list. He had a 399 career average with bases loaded. And when he retired, he owned the record for most sacrifice flies with 128. He played more games at first base than anyone 2,413 and his 1,865 assists on the major league record. He led the league in fielding percentage three times and he collected three gold glove awards. Murray's number 33 has not been worn by an Oriole since he arrived in 1977. As his number was retired officially in 1989, although a formal ceremony with Eddie involved, it wasn't held until 1998. The first time Murray's name appears on a Hall of Fame ballot, he was inducted, being named on 85% of the ballots in 2003. On January 2nd, Eddie's youngest sister, Tanya, died at the age of 38 from kidney disease. On January 7th, the Murray unit had her funeral. The press conferences for the inductees 
Both he and Gary Carter would be moved to the January 6th to allow any sufficient time between funeral arrangements and meeting with the press. After his playing days, Eddie made some philanthropic efforts, being nominated for the Roberto Clemente Award many times in his career. In Baltimore, he contributed 500K generously to the Carrie Murray Outdoor Recreational Campus in Lincoln Park, practically right around the corner of my stomach grounds. And that was in honor of his mother. In 2012, Murray, Brooks Robinson, Earl Weaver, Frank Robinson, Calvin Kidd Jr., and Jim Palmer were all honored with bronze statues at Camden Yards. Accredited baseball historian Bill James once said, Eddie Murray's best year was every year. He never won an MVP, but he was an MVP candidate every single year. And folks, I think this is where we're going to end the steady Eddie Murray bio this week. I love putting in the work. As so many of my childhood memories come cascading back into my baseball psyche this week. Many of you know, I'm not a huge fan of former Orioles owner Peter Angelos. But one of the few things he got right was sending that stiff Kim Merker to Cleveland in exchange for Murray and bringing the prodigal son home. There were many ups and downs for Murray in Baltimore, his first time through. But the true Oriole fans, they never wavered in their love and admiration for him. And his number, with his number retired and a bronze statue in his likeness above the bullpen area of Camden, his Baltimore legacy is secured as it should be. So, before I be, put a big, beautiful backwards K next to Eddie Murray's bio in the scorebook, Let's take one final look at those, oh, so lovely Hall of Fame numbers that the great steady Eddie Murray blessed us with during his career. Let's see, what do we got here? Edward Clarence Murray, a.k.a. Steady Eddie Murray. Number 33 in my program, but number one in my heart. His number 33 was retired from posterity by the Baltimore Orioles in 1989. Born February 24th, 1956. So, in three days, the baseball universe will celebrate Eddie's 68th birthday. And I just want to thank Eddie from the bottom of my heart for giving this fan one of the greatest childhoods that a young boy could ever ask for. Happy birthday, Eddie. And like the words... Red on Memorial Stadium, that facade before you walk in all those years ago. Time will not dim the glory of your deeds. Drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in the third round of the 1973 MLB Amateur Draft out of Locke High School in Los Angeles, California. On April 7, 1977, he becomes a 13,848. 840th person in the history of the planet to join the MLB fraternity when he makes his big late debut versus the Texas Rangers going one for four. 21 year Major League Baseball career with the Orioles, Dodgers, Mets, Indians, and Angels. 68.64, 113 best wins of former placement in the history of the game. 
3,026 games. 12,817 plate appearances, 12th most ever. 1,627 runs, 41st most ever. 3,255 hits, the 14th most ever. 560 doubles, 35 triples. 504 home runs, 28th most ever. 1,917 RBI, 11th most. 110 stolen bases, 43 times caught. 1,330 walks. 1,516 strikeouts, 5,397 total bases, 11th most ever. And look, if you got a guy on third with less than two outs with any of the plate, that dude's scoring. 128 sacrifice-wise, the most in the history of baseball, as are his 1,865 assists as a first baseman. 287, 359, 476 slash, 836 OPS, and a 129 OPS plus, 1977 AL Rookie of the Year. No MVPs, but eight times he was in the top 10 in MVP voting, including six times in top five. Eight-time All-Star, three Gold Glove Awards, three Silver Slugger Awards, four-time AL Player of the Month, nine-time AL Player of the Week, Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story about Steady Eddie Murray. Man, oh man, I want to thank all of you for stopping by this week. I hope you enjoyed the story about Eddie's life. As much as I enjoy putting in the work and presenting it to you. And look, I'll be up bright and early tomorrow hitting that cage, making my adjustments. And I promise, Reeks, I'll try to be even better next week. Like I always say, I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. I got too much love in my heart to bleed you guys for money. I'm not into this for the money. This is about my legacy, leaving a footprint behind for my daughter and her children. I want to thank all of you for making this possible, helping me to do what I love to do most, and that's pontificate the seams with freaks like you. I'm just going to keep coming through every Wednesday with that free. Baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my boy, Adley Rockstar. Please leave a rate and review. Share with your CMAT buddies. I'm on TikTok, YouTube, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. I ain't hard to find. Figure it out. Okay, Gunner. Let's get this BKP time travel choo-choo back to Terrapin. Get these nerds back to their loved ones patiently waiting as we build up the quantum speeds necessary to get back to 2024. I see the Eddie Murray story getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror. So, I turn my eyes onto our baseball hydro, I draw my katana blade, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in their place. Next week. I think we're going to do a stadium show next week. And where are we at now with this? I think we're up to Comerica Park. Home of the Detroit Tigers. 
So next week we're going to talk about her history and construction. Sounds like fun. So, take us home, Gunner. I think we accomplished our goals here. Vinny, Vinny, Vassie. We came, we saw, we kicked this show's ass, kid. Parents, if you see a kid sitting on the couch, they got their noses in the phone, they're looking up productive AF. By all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo a couple years back, you can find that in the archives. And as an Oriole fan, I I had to agree when he said, "You go to hell, Andy Pettit, you softball freak." Me and the Polonius Milan of a co-host Charlie Guns, we're throwing up our Gunner Henderson, y'all. That's our number two, you nerds. As in. Peace. See y'all next week with the Comerica Park Show. 